This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, November the 14th, 2014. Episode 2, concerning another miracle cure for extreme swelling, a sinful clerk, and some lightning bolts. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval text. In this episode, we're going to look at a snapshot of the kind of grab bag of events you often find when you read a medieval chronicle. When we talk about medieval history, uh, or more specifically the writing of history during the Middle Ages, um, anyway, when we talk about medieval historical texts, we're really talking about a wide range of writings that crisscross a bunch of genres. We do have things that you might properly call histories in the way we would think of a history book today, um, grand narratives that attempt to describe and explain the rise of kingdoms or the spread of Christianity. Uh, but one major difference between medieval and modern histories is that medieval historians are far less concerned with causality than we are today. We tend to approach history books to learn the reasons why something happened the way it did, Medieval historians were more content to simply record that something had happened, uh, and then to meditate more on its value and meaning. And since most of our medieval historians are churchmen, finding meaning usually involves relating the event to God's providence and making moral evaluations of lives and deeds. So they can sometimes give us a sense of the human motivations that might drive events but they have very little conception of the kinds of larger socioeconomic forces that we tend to focus on as the engines of history today. So there are medieval histories with a capital H, so to speak, uh, but historical narrative is also embedded in a number of other genres. Um, hagiography and biography are two key genres, as we saw last episode. Um, you also have travelogues, autobiographies, and spiritual confessions that can give you history and history gathering in the first person. You also have historical events filtered through epic poetry and chivalric romance. All of these are rooted in narrative, and for the most part, they use narrative to support some kind of evaluative goal. They justify the current political order. They prove the sanctity of the local saint. They exalt the lineage of the local lord, etc., etc. Uh, they use the narratives of history, and sometimes even invent them, in the service of providing support for a lesson of some sort. This is a well-known bit of medieval genre theory. The super-simplified version is that stories can be of three types— they can be historia, or history, which is things that actually happened. They can be exempla, or parables, uh, which are things that didn't necessarily happen, but which serve to illustrate truths. And lastly, they can be fabulae, or fictions, which at best are make-believe fantasies, and at worst uh, are diabolical lies. These three genres roughly overlap with the three main purposes that literature was said to serve, which are that it could preserve knowledge or memorialize, it could teach values, either directly or by example, and it could entertain. And entertainment was the least important of these. Good history could do all three things. 
It could preserve, teach, and entertain. Good parables could do the last two, teach and entertain. But fiction, alas, was only good for entertainment. And because it was defined by its falseness, it was always in danger of actively undoing the first two goals by making people believe lies and providing bad examples for people to imitate. What's interesting is that despite this extremely dominant ideology um, surrounding medieval literature, you get remarkably elaborate and sophisticated fiction, uh, the heroic epics, the romances, um, even though that's supposed to be at the bottom rung of the cultural ladder, whereas history, which by rights is the noblest narrative genre, um, non-narratively theology always holds the trump card, uh, but history is, in contrast, often a kind of slapdash and provisional affair. Uh, not that that's a negative assessment. Personally, I find that slapdash quality quite charming. But this brings us to the other major historical genre that slips uneasily around the fringes of this larger genre theory. Uh, and this would be the annal or chronicle. These are defined by their form. They're organized almost entirely by chronology and present events year by year. In fact, an annual, by its most common definition, is basically little more than a bulleted list of years with significant events, um, especially deaths and appointments to office, attached to each item. Whereas, uh, again, using a rough definition, a chronicle is an expanded form of the annal, usually in more fully developed prose with transitions and such. Um, and that's the strict definition of a chronicle. Uh, chronicle is, of course also often just used as a synonym for history. Um, so not everything called a chronicle is a chronicle in the strict sense of the term. Uh, but anyway, for both chronicles and annals, uh, often these kinds of texts have been written by several authors over many years or even many generations. And so one common characteristic of them is that uh, they lack uh, thematic unity or design chronology, for better or worse, is their design. Uh, their authors are certainly still sensitive to the major goals that I just mentioned, but they can't pursue them in as consistent a way as other historians and storytellers. Uh, indeed, such texts often sometimes hook their purpose almost entirely to the preservation of things from the oblivion of forgetfulness. But one of the effects of the simplicity of the chronicle formula is that you get these fantastic juxtapositions. In fact, reading a chronicle of this kind is remarkably similar to reading the clippings collected in Wisconsin Death Trip. That, that's the namesake of this podcast, and you can find more about it in our prologue episode if you missed that. Uh, but you get a pattern that's basically, here's something interesting that happened. Oh, and here's something else memorable that happened about the same time. And then people also said that such and such occurred after that, and so on. It's a style that's oddly appropriate for a low attention span 21st century. It has a whiff of internet clickbait about it, and it reminds us that there are commonalities, maybe we can even go so far as to say universals, about human curiosity across time and culture. So, for example, because I'm apparently painfully unhip, I still use the Weather Channel's weather.com uh, as my go-to weather forecast. 
You cool kids can use your trendy weather services like Weather Underground or Weather Bug, but I'm sticking with the Wonder Bread Miracle Whip bologna sandwich of weather forecasts. But I've noticed over the last couple of years that Weather.com pushes these ridiculous clickbait quote-unquote news videos at you. Uh, Things with titles like, uh, let's see, Passengers Terrified After Freak Accident and Mysterious Deaths in Texas and uh, When Taxidermy Goes Wrong with Photos uh, and Can You Spot the Snipers Hidden in These Photos. Uh, Though I've trained myself to never, ever click on any of those, um, and the general rule of thumb is that if a headline ends in a question mark, that's a major red flag. I nonetheless feel the pull, the tingle of curiosity to find out why, quote, this secret graveyard will make you angry, unquote. Uh, And today's stories are relatively tame. I distinctly remember earlier this summer seeing headlines about sea monsters and ghost ships and other things that used to just be the domain of the old Weekly World News tabloid. But these kinds of incidents would be right at home in the source of our text for today, the Chronicle of Lanarkost. This chronicle is practically the perfect stereotype of a medieval chronicle. It's largely a string of incidents, often shifting from one kind of event or topic to another with hardly any buffering transition. Items are grouped together simply because they all happened in the same year, and so you get major historical events sandwiched between local miracles and oddities. The deaths of leading aristocrats are recorded alongside the births of deformed and therefore portentous calves and lambs. It's a fantastic historical uh, miscellany. That said, uh, the Chronicle of Lanacost is of particular interest to historians because it records with some degree of authentic local testimony uh, the events of the Scottish-English wars of the late 13th century, um, the conflict that's featured in the movie Braveheart. This bit of historical witness is the Chronicle's main claim to fame, um, but we're not going to be dealing with that today. Uh, I'll likely come back to Lanarkost in future episodes to look at some of these battle narratives. There are certainly some interesting ones. But today we'll be focusing on its historical miscellany function. But before we get there, some very quick and rough historical data about this text. It survives in a single manuscript— and was probably written during the 13th and 14th centuries by a series of monks from Lanarkost Priory in northern England, uh, rather near to the Scottish border. None of these individual monks has been identified, um, even though you'll hear a first-person narrator often intruding into the discourse. And it's also unclear how much of the earlier sections may have been edited or revised by later individuals. Uh, that, that is to say, it's clear from the evidence in the text that there must be multiple contributors, but there's not enough evidence to clearly distinguish one from the other. One thing that is apparent about the monks who produced the Lanarkost Chronicle is that at least some of them had a very strong positive bias in favor of the Franciscan order, which is something we'll actually see right at the start of today's excerpt, uh, and also that they had a very negative bias against the Scots. Uh, which doesn't factor so much in today's reading, but uh, will certainly come up um, whenever we come back and visit some of the war narratives. I'll be reading from a translation of the latter part of the Chronicle by Sir Herbert Maxwell, published in 1913 and available 
uh, freely on Google Books. We'll start by looking at a series of events recorded for the year 1288, uh, and then I'm going to jump ahead a few years to add in a related event uh, from 1291. But let's dive in. There happened also something else to enhance the honor of St. Francis, which at that time had not become sufficiently well known to the northern part of the English province. A certain Burgess, in the town of Newcastle, who is alive at this day, Alexander Ferber by name, contracted such a severe hot dropsy that he was given up by the physicians, and, from the swelling of his body, presented the appearance of a great ton, while his legs were beyond the compass of any leggings. This man, constrained between dread of praying and love of his children, being ill-prepared to meet death, brought himself round to seek God's pardon and the help of the saints. By advice of his friends, he caused himself to be measured with various saints upon whose assistance his hope more fully relied. And whereas he felt relief from the power of none of them, he made a vow to St. Francis that he would personally visit his tomb if, through his help, he should recover the health he desired. In that very moment, therefore, he was affected by a flow of water so continuous that it never ceased running for the rest of that day and the whole of the following night, so that it sufficed to fill a very large tub. Hence the skin of his body became so loose through loss of flesh that, to the neighbors who gathered to view him, he would stretch out his skin like a garment, and it seemed as if he could make himself leggings about his shins out of his own hide." Having thus recovered some degree of strength, straightway he set out upon a journey piously to fulfill his vow, and showed forth the praises of God's saint in presence of many persons, returning home happy and healthy, having many witnesses, including myself, to this event. On the other hand, I will relate something that may instruct posterity how great is the difference between God's service and worldly vanity. There lived at that time in the Diocese of Glasgow a young cleric, strong and handsome, and beneficed out of the patrimony of Christ, but, as is to be deplored, more concerned in mind about getting into the company of rich men than about the care of souls. He who neglects his own soul despises or vilifies that of another. And so this vain man, called Adam Uri, learned as a layman in lay law and disregarding God's precepts against Ulpian's praetorialia, used to employ the laws for litigation, lawsuits for quibbling, the statutes of the emperors for pecuniary gain. But when he had become advanced in years, and had become notorious for his villainy, and was endeavoring to involve the affairs of a certain poor widow in his toils, the divine mercy arrested him, chastising his body with a sudden infirmity, and enlightening his mind, so that he should discern more of the hidden things and discourse of another life. For, lying in bed for four days and having made confession, he altered his intention of wrongdoing the widow, foretold the day of his death, vehemently condemned the court of pleaders, and ordered his servant to come quickly to him, adding that, just as he himself would go first on the Saturday, so he, the servant, would follow the next Monday, just as the event turned out in the end.
At that time, King Edward was staying in Gascony, and on a certain day, when he and the Queen, having met together in a chamber, were sitting, conversing upon a couch, a flash of lightning entered a window behind them, and passing between them, killed two domestics who were standing in their presence, they themselves remaining wholly unhurt. All the rest who were present were amazed on beholding what had happened, discerning that a miracle had not been wanting for the royal safety. So that's our first selection from the Lanarkost Chronicle. I'll now skip ahead about 30 pages or three years to relate another description of a dramatic lightning strike. At the festival of St. Michael, there was such rain over the whole of England and such floods as caused great trouble not only to farmers but especially to travelers because of the miriness and wetness of the roads. In many places also the lightning and thunder were extraordinary, whereof I shall here note an instance, known to not a few, and related to me by one who was there and saw. There is a country village called Staveley near Chesterfield, containing a stately parish church, wherein, while the priests were performing the service on the first Sunday after the Feast of Angels, Suddenly, about the first hour of the day, the air became thick and dark, and by a single stroke of lightning much damage was caused all at once. For the lightning, entering from the east part of the choir by a window towards the north, defiled everything it touched along the northern wall with a black smoke, splitting the stones and loosening the joints of the couples. It killed one priest and injured the other in such manner that he lived afterwards as a cripple for not more than two years. Turning south at the end of the chancel, it blackened all the right side of the image of the glorious virgin over the altar, and did to death a certain cleric who was kneeling in prayer at the right end of the altar, having there performed his mass, so suddenly that it turned that part of his body which was nearest the wall, from head to foot, together with his garments, into something like pitch, the rest of him remaining entire. Thence crossing westward to the bell tower, which with its roof was all of stone, it shattered the crossbeams with a loud crash and easily swept away the stone dowel with its great iron spike. Such mysteries as these deserve to be shrewdly investigated at leisure and to be gravely considered. I love that last line about considering the mysteries. Let's hold on to that for a moment. We'll come back to it in a little bit. The first thing that strikes me about this whole selection is how the individual episodes really do sound like they could come right out of Wisconsin Death Trip, uh, minus the rhetorical ornaments of Victorian newspaper prose. This is history as a news of the weird column, but there's one key difference between this and News of the Weird. News of the Weird is presented simply as a catalog of surprising and improbable things. Its purpose is really just to say, look how strange the world can be. You know, or to reinforce the old cliche, truth is stranger than fiction. 
a publication like the Fortean Times might at least make a show of analyzing and interrogating the odd phenomena it tracks, uh, but News of the Weird is strictly a sideshow. It's factoid exhibitionism. At first, it might seem that the Lanarkost Chronicle is doing the same thing. It's recording things that are of interest because they are curiosities. That's true, uh, but the impulse to share such strange events is also invested with this idea that they are worth knowing about because they have meaning. Their strangeness certainly does give them a kind of rubbernecking entertainment value, but that same strangeness also marks them as portents, as signs. Their strangeness is what demands that they be interpreted. We aren't asked to interpret the significance of the items that show up in News of the Weird. If anything, their strangeness marks their meaninglessness. These are the aberrations, the outliers, the exceptions to the rules of normal experience. They are the data points that you are supposed to toss out. Um, that said, I'm sure there is a cast of people who do read those same data points as the evidence that our science is too limited, uh, that there are more things in heaven and earth, etc., etc. Um, this is the mentality that fringe beliefs are somehow more true, or at least more noble, because they challenge the authority and complacency of the mainstream. That sort of mentality is kind of half-medieval and half-anti-medieval. It's medieval in the sense that it is willing to privilege the marvelous as especially significant. Uh, but where your typical medieval mind would uh, recoil is at the idea that the strange validates the unorthodox position. That's a gross generalization, of course, and there's a major threat of revolutionary and dogma-challenging discourse also coming out of monasteries at various points in time. So we shouldn't think of the Middle Ages or even the elite classes uh, that have access to writing and manuscript production, like churchmen and monks and clerks. Uh, we shouldn't think of them as universally conservative. Um, but I do think we can safely say that the Lanarkost Chronicle, at least, is not particularly concerned with advancing any heterodox positions, uh, not theologically anyway. And let me just say that I do apologize for being so equivocal on things so often, uh, all this on the one hand and on the other. Um, and I know that can be frustrating, uh, but as I see it, the Middle Ages suffer enough from enormous misconceptions that you know a little equivocation is better than reinforcing those misconceptions. And the world's better off with a bit more gray in place of black and white anyway, uh, even if it does sometimes make our arguments a bit less clear. Um, don't tell that to my composition students, though. Anyway, the chronicler's impulse here is to provide some kind of interpretation of the events he records. Often this is basically a moral interpretation. Here's how this story shows you what to do or what not to do. We see that in the episode of The Man with Dropsy, who does the right thing by trusting in St. Francis for a cure. In the second story, about the clerk's deathbed repudiation of his sinful life and sinful friends, uh, the writer tells us that it's presented to, quote, instruct posterity how great is the difference between God's service and worldly vanity. And when the king and queen survive a lightning strike that kills others in the same room, this is presented as evidence of their divine blessing. 
But the story of the other lightning strike resists any easy lesson. Lightning strikes a church. Priests are killed, one in an especially gruesome way, and the building and its ornaments are damaged. Now, I think many medieval authors faced with this would conclude that this must be an expression of divine punishment, and some of them probably wouldn't balk at inventing a crime or blasphemy to attribute to the dead. But our chronicler here does not do that. For this terrible event, he does simply stand back and say, isn't this a strange and terrible thing? Such mysteries as these deserve to be shrewdly investigated at leisure and to be gravely considered. Well, on the subject of mysteries, I thought I'd introduce a new feature to the podcast, a closing riddle. At the end of each episode, I'll give you a medieval or sometimes classical riddle, and you'll have to tune in next episode to get the answer. So here's our first riddle. A silent guest, a speaking house, the guest will be caught while the house gets away through a hole. So if you can name what that is or what that describes, uh, well, tune in next week for the satisfaction you'll feel at having guessed correctly. Uh, There are no prizes as of yet. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with the answer to the riddle, as well as another medieval text. You can get bibliographic information for today's selection at MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. I welcome your comments and feedback, uh, either through Twitter or at MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can also access our previous episodes. So, until next time, thanks for listening.